podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. This week, arguably the biggest series in the world game starts with India taking on Australia at Nagpur for the start of the Border Gavaskar Trophy. We've also got a World Cup starting on Friday, so lots to get through on today's show, including one of the most surreal comments we've ever had sent in. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is Katia Whitney, Joe Harmon and Phil Walker. Phil, we've, we've got through a month of predominantly white ball and specifically franchise cricket. We've had David Cameron applauding Alex Hales and all that. And now we've got the number one team in the world going to the number two team in the world to four tests. The first time Australia have toured India in six years. Has that got your, your juices flowing? Forever flowing, perpetually. Um, like an onrush. Uh, of course, yeah, I'm really up for, up for it. It's it's going to be um, it's going to be a, a tough one to call. Um, all that will be Australia are struggling a little bit in with one or two injuries. Obviously, they're losing the bit their big two quicks, and Cameron Green has been ruled out, so they're not quite full strength. But it still is a resurgent Australia side, number one in the world, um, and they have a point to prove out there. I think Steve Smith is going back to a place where he. He lit it up last time, played one of the great, great knocks in Pune, and he'll be alongside Manus, the key men again. Um, India, there's one or two issues around who they're selecting. Obviously, Rishabh Pant is not available for obvious reasons due to that awful car accident. Thankfully, he's making a, a full recovery, it would seem, but he's obviously not available, so they'll be going with an uncapped keeper. So there are one or two issues around their lineup as well. Um, but however... Whichever twenty-two take the take the park on Thursday morning in Nagpur, um, it's going to be a humdinger. And it's interesting that the build-up has focused around the the idea that this is the big one in big capital letters. And you know, obviously, an Aussie enjoys saying it, knowing that this will filter its way back to our little pocket of the cricketing world. Uh, but look, I'm all for it. And and. Uh, while they can't speak with any great authority because they've never won in England <laughs> or indeed in India, they nonetheless say that a win in India would be the pinnacle, would be the toughest place to go and win. And, and undoubtedly that is the case. Uh, the spectre of Ravichandran Ashwin looms epically large over this whole series. Uh, he's been unplayable when faced, when coming up against anybody over the last few years. Uh, he's an all-timer. Um, he fancies it. Uh, he's been quite vocal. Um, in the build-up to it, and yeah, look, if you can't get up for this one, uh, you're in the wrong game. Then you're definitely, (laughs) definitely in the wrong game. Joe, how about you? I don't know if I agree with Phil that it's tough one to call. Really, it's not to say that Australia can't go and win there, but I'd be quite shocked if if they do. uh, And that's only been exacerbated by the injuries they've they've got. Um, I don't know how much I fancy some of their kind of informed batters over the last year or so to go in India. Travis Head hasn't hasn't done so well outside of Australia. I think Labuschagne averages 33 in seven tests in Asia. Compare that to kind of 70 or so in Australia. So whether he can kind of kind of get stretch his numbers up to that kind of level, or anything near is is going to be crucial for them. But but it's the bowlers really. I, I think looking at that to, to lose their we talked before would would Australia go with their quicks? Would that be their way of trying to win in India despite the fact that the conditions don't necessarily lend themselves to that? Well. That's almost been sort of taken out of their hands with the loss of of Hazelwood and, and Stark not available for the first test. And those spinners, I just, it, it seems, the chat around it seems they're going to go with, with Agar as a second spinner alongside Lyon. And it feels like they're fin- falling into a kind of classic English trap here of, of picking a spinner because of the way they bowl rather than how good they are. Um I haven't seen anything more of Todd Murphy than a few balls on YouTube, but everyone seems to say he's he's the better spinner than Agar. If that's the case, then I, then I reckon you play him, even if that does mean you end up with, well, three off spinners in your side with Travis Head there as well. Green is a is a big big loss. He, they say he might play as a specialist batter, possibly. I don't think he's going to. Smith they, said yesterday, maybe in the press conference as vice captain, obviously, but he said he's almost certainly not going to play. Right. Okay. So then it's hopeful for the second test. So it's probably Renshaw at six who, who played there in South Africa and obviously got, 
got runs and famously shat himself as well, didn't he, on in, in the last trip to India? Uh, or did he? Did he not? Like Alan Border said he should have stayed out there and yeah, shat himself. He had to run off mid innings yeah. so he could not shit himself. And Border said he'd yeah. rather see him shit himself yeah. than come off the pitch. Yeah. That's a very Border, <laughs> very on brand Border comment. And, and then, and, the, and then the other one is Hanscom that they're talking about, yeah. who's the the rival for Enshaw, who is one of kind of international cricket's mysteries to me because whenever I've watched him he's looked absolutely pants but he's been tearing up in the Sheffield Shield when he plays for Middlesex he can't buy a run but he's thought of as a good player of spins so he might be in contention yeah. as well for that role there yeah. must be an Australian podcast that thinks this about a lot of English players and and they'd be <laughs> right in, <laughs> yeah. in, in, lots of, in lots of cases but it, it is it is an odd one uh, um, yeah they, they, they run the risk of being exposed in that middle Australia do in that middle order with a run of lefties uh, with Carey as well, obviously the keeper almost certainly at seven. If Renshaw is in there at six, behind head at five, then Ashwin will be potentially licking his lips. That said, he has the one that goes the other way. So, you know, and he made a mug of a lot of right-handed English players when England were out there a year and a half ago. So who, who can say? I mean, there's um, some, some chat in the Indian media that they might play all four spinners. So Jadeja, Ashwin, Axel Patel and Kuldeep Yadav. I think Green is a massive loss. Yeah. He's not played that much test cricket yet, but he's got a really good record in Asia from a reasonably small summer size. Uh, Katia, how do you think Australia are going to line up without those kind of three nailed on starters out injured? Well, it seems they're going to have four bowlers, but that's really risky, right? Especially with a quota of already injured fast bowlers to then go in with two fast bowlers. Well, I was looking at it and I was thinking, well, why don't you put bump Carey up to six, put Agar in at seven, and then play another three bowlers, four, I've lost count, um, beneath him. Like, yeah. why wouldn't that work? Go in with three spinners or two or three seamers, whatever. But don't I, think I, they're going to do guess, that. I guess... I mean, Ravi Shastri's already said he expects it to turn from day one. So I don't think it's going to be a case of like Chennai first test of, of that England tour where you get a result some point on day five. So I don't think there's a massive amount of value in packing your bowlers because there's not going to be an enormous amount of overs in the game, certainly if patterns are, are replicated from the past. Uh, and I think Australia will probably be thinking... We're not going to get that much more out of playing three spinners as opposed to two, uh, and so especially they quite fancy see how they go. Pat Cummins was talking out, talking up Travis Head as a as, 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 as better than a part third spinner, spinner as well. So that yeah, but you still look at that two seamers, one of them being Scott Bolland, who's never played a Test match outside sure, Australia. Sure, you've got Cummins, and that's about it, really. So that if it's you're not going to get anything out of a ball if it reverses at all, because they're not going to risk Lance Morris, are they? Having not played a test before, he's the one that could really get it reversing with Cummins, and they're not going to risk playing him. No, you wouldn't have thought so. I, I can absolutely see what you're saying, but it's it's the problem as England have, you know, when Stokes isn't fit, however you do it, it doesn't quite work. So Green solves a number of problems, but he creates a number of intractable ones as well. Um, I'm almost certain that they will go with Carey at seven head as your fifth bowler and, and try and get it done with two and two. Uh, it's a big ask for sure. And obviously they are, you know, India are comfortable favourites going into it. Uh, but then Pakistan were favourites last year when Australia went out there and Australia ground them down, albeit they're on different tracks, of course. But uh, I don't think that that side could, should be dismissed in the makeup of this of this series. And because it is such a high-end series, I think... You can see India; they do that. They are they can be vulnerable if if the momentum of the game is shifting away from them, um, and then they can get a little bit desperate as well. And uh, there's not a lot of te recent test runs in that team. No, a indeed, lot of big name players, but in, it's indeed. also not. I mean, Rohit has not actually done much test captaincy since he became captain. Right? He's, he's missed a lot of games. Rahul, perhaps in the last India tests. And in India's makeup is interesting as well because uh, is out injured and it seems to be that Rahul will probably open and, and Gil will go in at five mm -hmm. after Bajara and Kohli. A more exciting selection, which they probably won't go with, will be to open up with Gil, who, you know, is in such wonderful form, albeit white ball stuff, just to open up with him, just say, you just go out there and play and then have the kind of the the box office uh, Suyakama Yadav at five and just if you think the pitches aren't going to last just well if he scores a, a runnable 50 runnable 60 even a runnable 30 in these games to be honest that could be the kind of a, a match changing knock I mean I don't think they'll go that way not first test of a series but it'd be quite an exciting side if they did one last word on Steve Smith uh, 
who's obviously been a bit up and down uh, over the last couple of years, but the bits that we saw in the Big Bash, he's hitting it as well as ever. Um, and the bits that we saw in the ODIs before that as well suggested that he's at ease with his game. He's certainly indicating that. And you see it with the great players. The Almost invariably, unless your name's Bradman, you go through periods where you're not quite as hot as other points. And I think Smith uh, is coming back into an, a sustained run of greatness. I think I can, ju- I can just see it happening. I don't think that he is a player who just drifts away into some version of mediocrity. He's too, he's too great for that. Uh, it might not start yet. Um, although, as I said earlier, he does have form on Indian pitches and on big turning tracks as well. I expect, I think he's going to go really big this series. It, it probably won't be enough to get Australia over the line across four test matches, but I think he's going to personally have a serious, serious series. You've got to look as well at the, the other two, Head and Lavashane. Lavashane particularly, his record in Asia isn't great but if he does go on this series and have been signed with the 100 he got in Sri Lanka the 90 he got in in Raupindi he's perfectly capable of scoring those runs in Asia he just has to go and do it and he could well do it this series and then if him and Smith in that middle order are both firing so if those three do fire then that could be enough yeah a really good point and that series you mentioned that Sri Lanka series so Kawaja went out to Asia didn't he having Barely played in Asia, and I don't think he's ever played a test match in India, has he? But he went out to Sri Lanka with a reputation of not being good against the turning ball growing up in Australia. But he went out there and he played well in Sri Lanka and he got runs in Sri Lanka. Um, if he can answer that riddle uh, and he, he go out there with, with Warner and make a mark, uh, and it might not be that he bats all day on what we imagine are going to be juicy tracks, but it, if he can show a bit of adhesiveness initially and then a few shots and get 60s 70s perhaps then that does set them up I don't think this is going to be a 400 v 450 kind of series um there are a number of question marks against these Australian players but uh Kawaja is a is a is an enigma of a cricketer but he's in the form of his life if you look at the numbers well I had a monster series in Pakistan didn't he and well, obviously yeah. again the pitches would be very different but I think those kind of early questions of whether he could play in those conditions he's he's kind of proven that he can I'm just anticipating some of the replies that we're going to be getting about the English sniffiness towards turning pitches. No, I mean, I'm all over it. I've, I've never had an issue. The Ahmedabad third test pitch against England was uh, extreme. When Joe Root, a part-time spinner, has taken five for nine, then it is extreme. And I'm not sure a game that's done in less than two days is particularly healthy or edifying for anyone. But I don't, I don't mind about turning pitches. If it's turning on day one, it's turning on day one and get on with it. I don't have any issue with that at all. Back to Murphy versus Agar. I find the mindset of a second spinner in Asia fascinating. So in Agar, you have someone who doesn't get in the team at home, who might suddenly have to be the crucial player that balances the side. And then Todd Murphy hasn't played a test match yet. And we kind of saw it on that England tour in 2021, just how hard it can be for the second spinner. Someone like Don Best, who probably wasn't ready for that role. Players can either sink or swim. This could be an incredible series of Tom Murphy. He could be an absolute superstar in a month's time. Equally, he could be back playing shield cricket. I remember talking to uh, Zafran Sari about bowling spin in India. And I can't remember which test it was that he played, but he was the third spinner because they packed packed the team with spinners because the ball's turning. And he's like, well, but 40 overs in, I'm, I haven't bowled. And that's that's not... It's it's a, psychologically it's weird. You're you're picked because the conditions suit you, but you're also the third choice in your discipline, and you're only really going to be playing a bit part role. I think, I think you're you're better off going with two really good ones and having a part timer than someone who's picked and essentially not not really doing that much. And he he was describing sort of just you know standing in the field, his confidence kind of draining away before he'd even had a bowl because it was quite clear that he didn't have a kind of pivotal role in the side to play. So they actually have four, don't they? Because Swepson, I don't think we've mentioned. Yeah, we've not mentioned Swepson, but he's there as well. So he's almost certainly not going to play that first Test match. This is the, the moment, yeah. Um, but if Green does come back and say they are one down, then Catch's idea about potentially looking at getting five bowlers in there somehow, and they are one down chasing the series, then perhaps the leggy comes into it. I thought he bowled all right in Pakistan in 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 moments. He wasn't consistent enough, and they were very tricky pitches, unyielding pitches, but. I can see that perhaps if they are chasing the the series that he does come into feature somewhere or other because even if, even though he's going to go for a few 
He is a wicket taker. I, I read that his record against right handers is surprisingly poor for a leggy, yeah. and yeah. Agar's is actually really quite bad for a left arm spinner. I think he's averaging seven in the seventies over the last few years. Yeah, play the two off. Whereas, whereas Murphy's, you know, he's the off spinner, so he wouldn't necessarily fancy him against the right handers. Actually, has a very good record against the right handers. Yeah, so, and, and just for people who don't know, I mean, I've, I've barely seen him either, but he's. He's tall. He gets a lot of overspin. Apparently, he's a right, he's a conventional right arm off break bowler, but he's got a very very good record early on in his, his career. He's twenty two years young, uh, but he's taken three fourthers in seven first class games already. Bowls like Swan, genuinely. Yeah, he's, he's very yeah. very clear. He's only been Swan. only been bowling for six years. I read. Yeah, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah mad. One of them. And he was yeah he was in the Australian under nineteen side three years ago. So within three years of bowling off spin, he was. For Australia under 19s at a World Cup. Without Green, they only have four bowlers. So whoever is, it's not going to be an Ansari situation. Whoever is going to be the second spinner is going to most likely have to bowl a lot. Obviously, a lot of pressure on them. Did you see this thing this week about the Australian net bowler who looks like, who bowls like Ashwin? Oh, I saw Ben send a drunk text, a drunk tweet. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to say. Home on Friday some, night after his football match. Some people got very excited about this, predominantly Ben. Uh, so there's some chat about uh, the spinner who, he's got an action that's quite similar to Ashwin, but. It's, it's also not that similar. And there was some chat that Australia have deliberately brought him in to to, to mimic what it's like playing Ashwin. But I, I don't think that's the case because I think Alex Carey was asked about it and he didn't really know that much about the guy. Still, so Ben got a number of likes for it. He did. So he did. all's well that ends well. <laughs> Even if you did bring him, you'd never admit that's why you did it though, because that'd yeah. be Ashwin six points up already, right? That was the gist of Ben's tweet. Was it? Um, yeah. I have to say, I haven't actually seen Ben's tweet, but... Next up, the Women's T20 World Cup. Cassia, what's your moment of the week? Um, England women in the warm-up match yesterday hit 247, just shy of 250, um, against South Africa, and then South Africa nearly chased it. Um, so, yeah, that was Which pretty good. good signs for the tournament, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty good signs. Um, and we looked at it, and I think all of us thought they were playing at a university ground. The boundaries must be pretty small but you said apparently they weren't small there was no broadcast of it so we couldn't watch it but apparently they weren't that small it was just a really really good wicket but yeah it is positive signs for the tournament Dunkley got I think 59 off about 19 yeah 59 off 19 and Capsie, Capsie. 61 off 33 so her collarbone's fine hmm. um she bowled one over I think and went for quite a lot of runs as most people did hmm. um but yeah really good signs the pitches are going to be quite interesting because, yeah, that was a very good pitch. But there are 23 games at the World Cup. 12 of them are going to be at Newlands. We've had this conversation before, uh, Women's World Cups, of how many games at certain pitches and how that affects the end product, really, because the pitches get slower and slower or the boundary sizes are, are really skewed one way or the other. That that has to be a bit of a concern. And you can kind of see it becoming a talking point with that lopsided fixture list. What? Why have they only split it between three grounds? I don't know. I don't know. I guess it's twofold, isn't it? You don't really want really low, slow scoring pitches in semi-final, final, but then it also might bring another side into it a little bit. You know, we always say England, Australia, India, there's always going to be a fourth side in that semi-final, so it mm. might bring them into it slightly. Um, but yeah, it is a bit of an issue um, and it will affect the matches at the later stages of the tournament. Mm. It's quite a lot of um, warm-up action happening in South Africa with very, very different games to that England South one. So Australia played India. Australia were 10 for three and then ended up winning by 44 runs. Uh, runs for Georgia Wereman, Jess Johnson, low down the order. And then Darcy Brown took a four for his India were bowled out for 85. And uh, it's not been a very good week for India at all, actually. They lost a tri-series final against South Africa. So that game against Australia as well. They were without Shafali Verma and Risha Ghosh for that South Africa game. Verma and Ghosh had to, after winning the Under-19 World Cup, they had to fly back to India for a celebration and then have to fly back out. And in doing so, missed World Cup warm-up matches, um, which I'm not sure is the best way to go. Kazi, you spoke to Sarah Glenn this morning. What, what vibes are you getting from the England camp? How do you think they're feeling? I think they're feeling good. I think the language she used was actually quite a sign of the impact John Lewis is making. They talk, She talked a lot about ruthlessness, um, a lot about being clinical, um, a lot about focusing on them as a side rather than looking at oppositions. And I think that's a welcome change from, from the Kitely era. And also it just seems like there's a little bit more structure around that side now. They seem to know what they're doing uh, going forward. She also spoke a little bit about the balance of the side. They had Boucher playing as an extra batter down at seven uh, yesterday, which with Siv Nat Siverbrunt uh, 
back in, that's a viable option for them. Um, Sophie Eccleston's carrying a slight injury, so it'll be interesting to see. She played as a batter yesterday, so it'll be interesting to see whether she is fit to bowl um, in their first match, but they've still got Charlie Dean and Sarah Glenn. But yeah, positive sounds were coming out of it. Um, seems like a good good vibe around the squad. It's always felt to me that England are a better 50-over side than T20 side, and that, that's largely been to do with the batters and, and the kind of the lack of power other than uh, Siva. They haven't really had those kind of players who can hit regular boundaries or clear the ropes. And it feels like that shifted quite a lot over the last 12 months. When you look at Dunkley's really come on, Capsley obviously is a natural hitter, um, Boucher can hit the ball well. You've got Eccleston who's developing as a lower order hitter. It, it feels like that balance has shifted a bit. And actually, I would back England to chase down targets based on the power they've got on their sides, much more so than I would, would have done in the past. Whether they've got the kind of mentality to chase down targets yet, yeah, I'm not quite sure if they've got there, particularly if they're up against Australia. But it does. there's good signs that they're a more kind of dynamic T20 outfit than they have been in previous years. Well, you said Dunkley. Dunkley, I think, is a better T20 player than she is ODI player. So having her in the side does tilt that balance a bit towards them being a better T20 side. And it's incredible in her short international career how much of a better side England look when Alice Capsey is in the side um, and having those players that have come through. And also even looking at the bowling with Charlie Dean coming on for some reason, well... I thought she'd played loads of T20 internationals, but she's only played five. So with Charlie Dean coming in and with Lauren Bell also coming in and doing really well, um, their bowling looks a lot better as well. So, you know, it's positive signs going forward for them as a T20 outfit. And, and the pitches might not be good for the overall quality of the product, but actually that could fall into England's hands if, if Eccleston's injury isn't particularly serious. You could have a team with Eccleston, Dean, Glenn and Capsie bowling. So England could pack the overs of spin I think what people forget is because Eccleston is so good they forget how good actually England's spin department is as a whole like Sarah Glenn's ranked number four in the world Charlie Dean's taken 11 wickets in the five matches he's played at less than five and over like they have really really good spinners below Eccleston so yes Eccleston would be a massive loss if she wasn't going to play but they still have those two really good spinners and Glenn said this morning that they could potentially look at playing three spinners like you said um it would be an option for them especially with Siva Brunt um balancing the side as the all-rounder so yeah could play into their hands a bit when we talk about Australia we kind of just brush past them quite quickly because of how good they are and I think it's worth just reiterating how good they are so in the last year the only game they've lost was after a super over against India and the vast majority of their games have been away from home as well. So they're almost literally unbeatable at the moment. And they've actually added to the side that won the last T20 World Cup. Um, Talia McGrath's obviously coming in and done, done really well. Um, they've got quite a few players who strike around about 140 at a very healthy average as well. So they are very much the team to beat. Back to the men's game. New Zealand named a squad for the England series that starts in just over a week. The headline news is that Carl Jameson is back fit. I was working out what their side is likely to be and came up with... Latham, Conway, Williamson, Nichols, Mitchell, Blundell, Bracewell, Jameson, Southey, Henry and Wagner. It's quite a good team, Joe. That is a good team. <laughs> yeah, and it's probably, there's, there's a feeling that New Zealand aren't the force that they were, but actually, you're right, when you put that team down on paper, it, it looks pretty good. The, the, the glaring omission clearly is Trent Bolt, and you know, Jameson hasn't bowled a lot for a long time. Southey, there are signs that he's waning. Um... And Henry is, you know, has had some brilliant performances, but has not got a great record overall. So I think, sure, they look like a good side, but they're not going to be able to replace Bolt. And the batting, you know, it's it's solid without looking anything to fear. I would say, um, I do think, and maybe this is an obvious statement now. England going so well, but you wouldn't have said it previously. I do think England going into this series as favourites. I'd be surprised if if they lose. Mm. But then that's kind of perhaps just playing into New Zealand's hands. They've still got an awesome record on on home soil. Yeah, and I kind of think that this New Zealand series is going to be, in terms of how much it challenges England, quite close to what people thought the Pakistan series would be and ended up not being because of the quality of the Pakistan attack in the end. These are probably going to be pretty flat wickets. That's what England had last time we were out there. So it's going to be a, a, a pretty, pretty tough challenge for England. I can see this being a really good series. Um, apart from there's only two matches apart from so it, how only good can it really be <laughs> Phil how, how do you see it going 1-1 one, one. I thought you'd be more 
What, gung, gung-ho England? Yeah. They're going to beat everyone all the time, forever. But you you predicted England winning Pakistan with a lot of people were more, more this close. This is the so. first away victory that, that Phil hasn't predicted for about a decade. <laughs> England. Every every single time they're going away. The every boys, single the, time you point it out. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the games in and of themselves, but I, I'm struggling to get excited about the series itself because the series doesn't exist. It's not a series. It's, it's two back-to-back games. Uh, I, I love watching Devon Conway bat. He's, he's a bit of a favourite of mine, and I think he brings some a bit of magic to that otherwise pedestrian lineup. Obviously, it's a solid lineup, and in Williamson, they have a fine player, albeit one that's maybe searching for a bit of form and over the last 18 months or so. Uh, Latham, Nichols, Mitchell, Blundell, Mi- all solid, all solid one. cricketers, and obviously Mitchell had a great, great few months over here. Um, and if that's it. If, if that, if Mitchell, who turned up over here, if that's what he is from now on, then obviously that is a complete game changer for that mm. batting lineup. But it, mm. it is, it was a bit of an anomaly in his career so far. Yeah, although he does tend to do very well against England in general, mm. doesn't he? Jameson's huge. Again, he's another world class player. Good player as well. Yeah, lovely, <laughs> lovely stuff. Uh, he's obviously a world-class player. I like Matt Henry as well. I, whenever I've seen him bowl, I've always thought he's bowled well. You know, I was mm. at that Edgbaston Test match where he he took the man of the match award when they were over here, pre-Stokesian era. Uh, Wagner's a good, solid Trent Bolt deputy. So yeah, they're an absolutely good side. Um, I, yeah, I would look. I'd, I'd lean towards a one-one. I think. Um, but yeah, it could be anything. New Zealand, they lost this time last year to Bangladesh, didn't they? You know, Hussein bowled them out mm. in an afternoon and no one in, no one thought saw that coming for a second. And yet, they are also broadly unbeatable in Fortress New Zealand. You know, they very, very rarely, if ever, turn over a series to to the other side. And England haven't won out there for a long old time, right? Not even won a test match, right? When was the last one they won a they test match? They do tend to go there after going to Australia 4-0. Yeah. So. In 2019, they lost 1-0. 2018, they lost 1-0. Uh, 2013, that was 0-0. So, yeah, 2008. So, so, 2008 would have been... Side bottom. It's the side bottom series. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then before that, it was the, the mad Christchurch game. Yeah. In that's, 03, that's double time. perhaps. Yeah. 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 That's still, yeah. But, yeah, very rare. Very um, rare that they, they get results out there. I guess part of New Zealand not losing many test series at home is it's quite actually it's quite hard to lose a two test series at home, isn't it? Because <laughs> you, you catch the opposition cold with a little, with little prep. Because I remember last year you were bigging up the New Zealand South Africa series. Oh, this is going to be really close. And then New Zealand absolutely obliterates South Africa in the first game. Yeah, and I then, have to admit I hadn't checked the schedule. I didn't realise that had a two <laughs> test series. I was very excited. But you were kind it. of right because it was one <laughs> one in the end. But the, the two test matches weren't close at all. Um, Katty, how, how do you see that series going? Should I go with one one as well? Um, yeah, probably one one. I mean, option. who knows? Um, we didn't. Well, Phil did, but we didn't think England were going to win in Pakistan, did we? And, mm. you know, they went and won. So, who knows? Yeah, I think this one will be a bit more interesting for how England look in the future and in the summer than the one in Pakistan will be. Especially with who they play. Another big ze- series for Zach Crawley, I guess, in the never-ending string of big series for Zach Crawley. You're right, in and of itself. But again, I remember Ben sitting in that chair a few weeks ago and saying, it's huge for Crawley. But it's you know he's got four knocks, and all right if he goes if he has if he has an Audi of a series four zeros then fine that that is that heightens the conversation. But if he like two blobs and a forty odd, people just shrug their shoulders and it's as you were almost. You know if it was six knocks, then more of a completed story can 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 develop around him. But again. It's also been a very wet summer out there. So, I mean, there's every chance he doesn't even get the four knocks. And, yeah. then, and then it's, you know, barely a thing, really. If you've said that then, so we've got what, England have got one test against Ireland, right, in between end of New Zealand and Ashes. So just extend that to the okay, test against yeah. Ireland shout, and then yeah. give him three knocks. Yeah, that's a good way knocks. of looking at it. Yeah, and he'll also, he will play quite a lot of championship cricket at the start of the season, which, you know, it's debatable how much... Uh, importance Stokes and McCullum will put on that anyway, but the, the pressure could build with a with a slow start to the summer. But and, and and I guess if we're you know going a bit further, Ben Duckett will come up against some interesting quicks, and he didn't really face that in Pakistan, partly because they were moribund pitches, partly because all Pakistan's quicks are injured. Out there, you know, Wagner's got some pace, and he'll bowl it in at the rib cage to the left hander, and Henry's got some pace through the air. Jameson will 
will bother him, tickle him under the you know the the armpit and so on, and he will experience a different kind of Test cricket to that which he's had before. So so that will be interesting, I suppose, to see how he goes. Um, also, we're doing big series four. I think Ben Folks fits into that category as well. Only played what one of the tests in Pakistan, two of the tests in Pakistan. I think he played the one, last one. Well, just one. Last yeah, one. Played the last one. Uh, we've got Bairstow waiting in the wings to come back. Um, Folks has done nothing to deserve to be dropped, but he's going to have to do really, really well to keep his place. How many uh, times has that sentence been said <laughs> around him? Just carries him around. England's attack is, is a little bit different. You've got Potts and Broader back. They weren't there in Pakistan. Uh, Stone is pr- pretty likely to play. He's, he's looked, is he? Yeah, I think so. You think he, that looked, if, he looked good in the ODI. So you think that there's no Mark Wood in the squad. There's no Joffre Archer. So he's the only one who's really above the 80 to 85 mile per hour group. Um, so you think he'll play at least one of those test matches. So that's that's a very big series for him. Uh, and he's the sort of guy that because of how quickly he bowls and he takes one five forever, people will get so excited about him. Uh, moving on, England announced a couple of squads for their tour of Bangladesh during last week's pod. So we reacted to the announcement live on the show and failed to work out that none of the test players were in the ODI squad because they'll still be in New Zealand for that tour there. Phil and Joe Katia, none of you were on last week's show. Do you, do you have any strong thoughts about that or any... Uh, opinions on Tom Abel's there for the first time. He's been in millions of Lions squads, never actually Joe played Joe likes talking about Tom Abel. Well, the squad announcement caught me by surprise because I didn't even know the tour was happening, <laughs> to be honest. So that was the, that was the first surprise. Um, <laughs> I suppose I was surprised to see Tom Abel in there. He's had a, he's had a really good year and everything for Somerset, um, but I didn't realise he was quite so far towards the front of the queue. But you know, he's not going to play in the World Cup. Really, so I, I, this is part of it. When you when you're missing so many players, it's interesting to see Harry Brook, who's you know woolly or won't he in the one day side. He's right on the verge of that team. See how someone like he went in Pakistan because you knew there were opportunities there. It's a bit different with Abel because I just can't see unless it's a series of injuries. I can't see how he forces his way in. Rian Ahmed will be fascinating because I think there is a chance there for him uh, to be part of a squad. And you know if Rashid goes down. That's a huge hole in England's white ball side. We've said that for so many years now. There is no one capable of stepping in. They start looking at Liam Dawson as a bits and pieces replacement. Now there is someone who legitimately could do the same job that uh, Rashid does, uh, albeit he's some serious boots to fill, but there is the potential there. So that that's exciting. I think that of the things I'm looking forward to watching in that series, and also they don't know where it's going to be shown yet, do they? I think that's no, right. Yeah, they, they're not, the, the UK broadcaster has yet to be announced. Yeah, okay. Maybe it took them by surprise as well. <laughs> it's also England's last away series before the World Cup. There's so many players who are likely to start that World Cup not playing. I'm not actually sure how much you could read into how England play there. And also, we always lump all Asian conditions together. And they're very left, different. They are very different as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> an announcement from the Wisden shop. Prices on all Wisden ales are at an all-time low with up to 45% off on our packs of pale and amber ales. Has it gone off? Uh, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Each can design features a different Wisden Cricketer of the Year. And for every can, we will include a free Wisden Cricketer of the Year collectible beer mat. You can find these on sale now at the Wisden Shop, available in packs of 6, 12 or 24. Wisden chalices and tankards are also available on sale as the perfect complement to the ales, all of which are available at wisden.com forward slash shop. I've got about seven Jeff Humpages at home, just for the record, just on my mantelpiece built up. Do you know if there were more humpages produced than other cricketers? I just think I got unlucky, like in the Panini <laughs> football stickers back in the day. Yeah, I just think I got got, got humped. I've got, a few, I've got quite a few Alex Stewarts. Have you? Yeah, quite a few Alex Stewarts. Lovely. Right, well, I'll, I'll do a swapsy with you. Uh, Joe, what's your moment of the week? Mine was, news came through last week from Surrey that Tom Curran is taking... Uh, a quote, an indefinite step back from Red Bull cricket in order to prioritise his physical and mental health. Uh, he's had a lot of injury problems over the last few years and that in combination with his England commitments have meant he's only played eight Red Bull games since he played his two tests wow. in the 2017-18 Ashes. So, you know, in that sense, perhaps it's no great surprise that he's made this decision. Equally, for someone like Curran to make this call, and he has also stressed it's not necessarily forever, he might come back to Red Bull cricket but it is just the latest example of how much and how quickly the game is changing Curran is not part of England's white ball setup at the moment it hasn't been for a couple of years but he is playing in the ILT20 he's about to go and play in the PSL 
He wants to make sure he's in the kind of prime condition to make the most of those opportunities, which we know are very lucrative and you, you can't really blame him for that. But, you know, this is a guy who took 76 championship wickets in his breakthrough year of 2015. He made his name as a Red Bull bowler. And now at the age of 27, he might never, he might conceivably never bowl, bowl with the Red Bull again. And that, you know, it's just, it's, I'm not stick, stick, sticking the boot in. It's just another indicator of, of the way things are going and, where priorities lie. I mean, he he did only play twice last year, but he scored a brilliant 100 for Surrey. Uh, and I wonder, well, maybe if he wants to just focus on his white ball bowling, does he not want to bat in championship cricket? He could conceivably play as a as a sort of lower order hitter for Surrey. Um, but seemingly that's not something that's of, of interest to him. He wants a complete break from all of that. Alex Stewart said he fully supports the decision. But... You know, for those of us who, you know, you can both be excited by what's happening in world cricket and also fear for what it means. And this is another one of those signs that will send alarm bells ringing through the heads of of a lot of people who really like championship cricket, who really like Red Bull cricket, because uh, it's a it's a big name player who's who's not playing it anymore. And also, we we talked about it before on the show in the last few weeks that there are so many English players who are nowhere near international selection making quite a lot of money in these leagues. And at the end of the day, Tom Curran doesn't have an IPL contract. He's taking quite a significant break during the English summer because there is so much money to be made during the winter. The first two months of the English season before the blast and the 100 get underway, that's actually the time for these players who can make that kind of money to take a break. And Tom Curran, sure, he's no he's nowhere near test selection at the moment. He's not played that much first-class cricket recently. But there will be other players for whom they ha- actually have that decision to make, um, that they actually wouldn't have had that decision even a year or two ago because there's so much opportunity now compared to just a couple of years ago. Because um, I, I actually put the question, sorry, I haven't had a response yet because I only asked them yesterday whether this means that Tom Curran has got a new contract, whether he's a white ball only cricketer or whether it's something more informal than that. But the reality is that the comparative money, it probably doesn't matter that much, whatever the contract is at Surrey, because it's not really going to compete with his stint in the PSL or the ILT20, or if he can get a big bash gig again. Um, I, I imagine there's not, doesn't make much difference to him. For what it's worth, I'll just throw in my, my thoughts on it. Um, firstly, it's obviously not surprising. Um, it's also, sure, symbolic of the, of the way that the game is going. Uh, but to me, a pretty small symbol. And it's because my reading of it is that it's very specific to this particular cricketer, Tom Curran, who uh, is, a, is a white ball cricketer by instinct as well as as by skill more than anything else. He's got some good red ball numbers. and the, But that season you mentioned, they were in Division 2 and it was seven years ago. And I think... I mean, he's on record as saying, years ago, I wanted to be the best white ball bowler I could possibly be. I remember he gave an interview to Vish. I can't remember where it was published, but he, he, said, the same, he said that to Vish, that he recognised that there was a... I think it was with us, wasn't it? It might have been with us. <laughs> I think it was in our magazine. I mean, you know, <laughs> just drifts along. But it may well have been with us. Uh, and, and he'd already begun to separate the two, the two disciplines. This was years ago. So I don't think Tom Curran in his heart of hearts could have, could have ima- can imagine getting back into that test setup. The game moves on so fast, and especially if you're a seamer, and especially if you've bowled a lot of overs in your professional career, as he has done. I think if there was still a legitimate chance that he could feature again in an, in an Ashes squad, say, then I think there's more chance that he would have not made this decision in the way that Reese Topley went back on his white ball decision because he thought, you know, I'm bowling well, I've got a bit of pace back, I'm six foot four, left armour, and England need one as in the test scene particular, particular uh, may well need one. And so he reversed his decision and started bowling Red Bull cricket for, for Surrey last year, last year. I'm not saying, I, I can't second guess what Tom Curran was thinking, but I think if we're looking at it coldly, dispassionately, the chances of him getting into a test side, even if he were bowling constantly with the Red Bull, I think are quite slim. The game moves on. Matt Potts would have been playing, you know, in... in Cumbrian cricket or wherever two or three years ago. Now he's taking fourthers at Lords for England. He bowls a bit quicker than Tom Curran and he's four, five or six years younger or whatever. So I think this is a decision based as much on a pragmatic acceptance of your place in the ecosystem as well as obviously the not inconsiderable 
financial drivers that will be under, underscoring part of that decision. I don't disagree with any of that, but I, it's the fact that he's not even part of England's white ball plans. So he's not, he's not focusing on his white ball cricket because he's playing it internationally. He's focusing on his white ball cricket at franchise level. And, you know, the statement says prioritising the vitality blast for Surrey. But, <laughs> it's so but, good, isn't it? Yeah. Which is, you know, a bit mm. of a stretch. Sure. But but then if he's thinking... Maybe he thinks he can... He's only 27. He could get back into that setup. It. But to me, he feels like a reasonably long way away from that. I mean, I'm not saying he'll But he's further play. away in the Red Bull than he's oh, in the Oh, absolutely, yeah. And that, that's why I can understand it. But if players who aren't even playing for England are leaving them behind and again it's slightly different with someone like Will Smead for example who's barely started his career and hasn't started his Red Bull career you know that you absolutely can see why he's gone that way at this point um, but it's just a shame if, if Red Bull County Cricket starts losing players like Tom Curran and, and you know there are specific reasons why he's done this absolutely but I do think those reasons will also apply to quite a lot of other players uh, and we might see more follow in the well in the year or two ahead Nasser Say made the point on Sky during the South Africa series that he worries a little bit about how much opportunity there is for younger players. And he worries about them not making the right decisions for their own development, not necessarily financially. So there are uh, one or two young English players rejected England Lions Red Bull call-ups this winter to play franchise cricket. Obviously, you're going to make more money playing franchise cricket. But Nasser he pointed out that, you know, quite often when you accept these gigs, you're accepting money to just sit on a bench and you're not playing that much cricket and you're not really developing. He picked and out Billings, didn't he? he and said, yeah, Look he named Billings. Billings has gone backwards. And and, and Curran's not a million miles off. I know he's had injuries as well, but he has also decided to play in competitions or sign up for competitions where he doesn't play that much and injuries have come into it as well. But, you know, it, it is interesting that a guy who gets picked for the test team at 22 is, is was very quickly nowhere near it. And that is in part because of injury, but it is also in part because of career decisions he has made over the years. And the worry is, I guess, is that if more players start making decisions like that, then your pool of players who are active Red Bull prospects at an international level is possibly smaller than it should be when players are even as young as 26, 27. I think this this links quite well with some comments that Andrew Strauss made this week at the MCC Caldry lecture. Um, He said... In the past, it could be argued that certain interests, whether they lie in this room or in the corridors of the ECB and other national governing bodies or on the boundary edges of the county grounds, took precedence over others. This is no longer the case. No one, not even the BCCI, controls the game anymore. There are too many people involved, too many variables, too much disruption and chaos for anyone to be pulling all the strings. In a sense, the game has democratised. While this is confronting and perhaps difficult to hear for some, I feel like we should be rejoicing in this fact. The game now has both more freedom and more levers available to allow it to fulfil its purpose than ever before. There is genuine choice for players, spectators and followers alike. The future direction of the sport will be decided not in the meeting halls of the ICC in Dubai, but rather by the purchasing power of the increasing number of those who choose to follow the game. I thought that last line was actually quite interesting, those who choose to follow the game and also those who choose to direct the future of the game. He's putting it in the the power of the spectators, which on a, on a certain level I can absolutely understand. There's greater choice out there. But also, it's as you remove the power from the traditional hotspots and obviously from its epicenter in Dubai with the ICC, it's the purchasing power of TV companies. It's the purchasing power of, of multinationals. It's the purchasing power of cement companies in Chennai and so on and so on. That's really where the power is shifting not so much into the, the the brotherhood of fans across the across the world but to to those who are selling their wares to these people and that's that's really where the power is shifting and i know that's what he's sort of getting at deep down but uh but yeah really interesting speech right and and initially you thought they've not had to throw the ball out too far to find who's going to do the, the, the MCC lecture when Strauss is just, you know, in the, in the next office. But it was really interesting. He, he's, a, he's, he's a great figure in the game. There's no question about it. He's a brave figure as well. He's made some enemies as well as friends in recent years by fronting up uh, and putting a few noses out of joint, a few counties' noses out of joint, and a number of county fans' noses out of joint. Um, but he is, he is 
saying things that people don't want to hear. And he has put himself forward to say these things. And he didn't need to do this because his legacy was already assured completely. But uh, his heart beats for the game. And he's prepared to, to, as he said, some of this can be confronting. Well, he's making us confront some of these points and some of these these challenging realities of, of the of the game not just today but tomorrow as well i mean definitely the the his association with the hundred has made him unpopular with a with a large swathe of people but you know he is undoubtedly one of the smartest minds in english cricket and has done a huge amount as captain as director of men's cricket he was the kind of the and the interesting thing is he's thought of as this establishment figure because you know he's obviously posh and that's his background but actually he's a you know really progressive cricketing mind as well we saw that with what happened with the white ball team at the world cup the hundred is another example of that and actually we've seen it with the test team now when the really good interview that butch did with rob key which we're going to have on the podcast in a couple of weeks key was absolutely clear he said none of this happens about strauss strauss was the one that got me on board strauss was very much part of the decision to get mccullum and stokes uh and you know you can't do all the things at once england's test team suffered because they won they put everything into winning the World Cup. I think most people would agree that was a worthwhile venture in it and it came off. And, and now the balance has been tipped and they're focusing on the test team. And Strauss has been right at the epicentre of that as well. Uh, and so when he talks about cricket, there's no point in writing him off as either an establishment figure or too obsessed with the money side of the game or whatever. He knows this game inside out and he's he's well worth listening to. And the, the idea of the democratisation of the game is an interesting one. You hear it quite a lot from some of the, the younger journalists like Matt Rollo, Ben Jones, talk about that in, in T20 terms because suddenly it's all about just how good you are, not where you're from. And that is definitely a part of the game which is is advanced hugely in the last few years and is and is a great part of T20, whatever you think about it. Mm. I guess yeah, I, I agree with him on, on, on the democratisation from a player's point of view, but in terms of what fans end up watching... I think it is quite skewed because there, there is so much money coming in from people who want to have control and can kind of superficially get control by pouring money into competitions in the short term. But then kind of like, what, you know, what is it that, at least in England, from an English perspective, what, what is it that fans in England pay money for? It's, it's not yet really to watch franchise cricket en masse. People have Sky subscriptions and BT subscriptions to watch English test cricket predominantly. People pay, I know that the magazine is doing something on ticket prices, Ticket prices are extortionate, but people are still paying. A lot of people are paying so much money to watch the test side. I, I don't know. I'm, I don't quite buy that last bit. But I no, no, saying. indeed. And, and it felt like he was handing out a, a favour that we're also sort of taking at the same time, right? Um, the, the world game may have more choice. And the world game, at the risk of a wild generalisation, is not as wedded to the stuff that English fans tend to be. Uh, and so I guess there is a shrinking perhaps of the stuff that you tend to get worked up with and average English cricket fans do. But then there is a swelling of stuff for, you know, fans around the world to, to get into in a way that perhaps that wouldn't have been the case in, in previous in previous years. So the democratisation argument stands up, but it comes at a cost especially to those who you tend to gravitate towards your, your older forms of the game and yeah, so on. There's room for nuance, really, isn't there? We tend to look at these things in very black and white terms. And Strauss is a realist, if anything. So he's exactly. saying this is what's happening with the game. But there's room to look at it and objectively analyse whether these things are good and bad and who, are the, who they are good and bad for. You talk about democratisation from the players. Well, arguably, that takes away from, as you said, the democratisation amongst the fans. That's a good, both a good and a bad thing. So you have to look at it as realistic nuance, I guess. There's, n there's not room to say this is definitively good, this is definitively bad. It's always somewhere in the middle. It's always more complicated and it's always more obscure. So there was something else that he, he spoke about dressing room culture. Did you read that bit? Yeah. Or hear that bit? Um, and I want to just run a, run a couple of quotes. Um, so he talks about the spirit of cricket, which is obviously, as we know, like a nebulous concept and so on. And if Butch was here, then he'd already have scoffed his, his coffee and walked out the doors. But anyway, the spirit of cricket, in inverted commas, Strauss said, needs to accompany modern players 
And I'm speaking primarily about the men's game now, he says, into an area that neither the prying eyes of the media or the feverish adulation of the fans penetrates. He's talking about the dressing room. And he says, as we move forward together as a game with players of different genders, races, creeds and beliefs coming together, so the traditional macho hierarchical, perhaps at times verging on bullying dressing room banter, will need to be softened to a culture that is more tolerant, understanding, welcoming and embracing of difference. Um, You know, important words, I think, really, and zeitgeist words. Uh, These are words that would not have been uttered a few years back, and I think they're they're absolutely, they need to be said. Uh, And this is also a bloke as well who was in a particular dressing room that was uh, dominated by macho male cricket institutions from X to Y to Z, and you can put the names in because you know who they are. He somehow managed to, to oversee that collective of alpha beasts, if you like. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that he's come out and said this, and it obviously taps into a sense of reckoning that the county game in particular is going through at the moment up and down the country. But I also think it's interesting that he's asking, he's, he's making a plea for men to be different beasts to what they to what they they have traditionally been in dressing rooms and i and i'm for this i'm for this discussion being had but it's but there's another part of me that's saying good luck with that you know good luck with trying to shift attitudes in quite a short space of time that have been embedded for many many decades even centuries and sport in itself is in part it's commensurate with one-upmanship and being better than the person next to you that's kind of in part what it is and so the spirit of cricket protects us against those ideas by saying well play up play up and we'll have a drink afterwards and it's not about the winning and the losing it's about taking part and all of that but he's talking about professional sport it is about winning and losing it's specifically about winning and losing because that's how you survive as an individual and as a collective and so they talk about fostering winners, that awful word, and I'll put it in inverted commas, and it's an ugly term, but it's nonetheless totally central to the notion of the whole endeavour. And so, and winners, and again, you, you'll have in your head winners that are totally inseparable from that word, right? But they also come often, in, not always, but often with certain character traits which are unpalatable. This notion of bullying or a kind of verbal abuse or ugliness or machismo um belittling demeaning language that has been tacitly stomached forever in sports dressing rooms in male sports dressing rooms in particular because that is the that is the way that it works or it certainly has worked up until this very this fascinating moment that that the game is confronted with um i hope that behavior that would have been tacitly accepted in recent times is confronted and is challenged and is called out and that these conversations that Strauss is trying to encourage people to have are being had I really want that to happen I've sat in dressing rooms myself at my own little level and felt very uncomfortable by this sort of the 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 naked ugliness literally (laughs) metaphorically of 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 your macho beasts, for sure. I, I think it's it's ugly about what it says about men. It's ugly about what it says about society. But it is very much a mirror of how people are and certainly how people have been for many, many years. Uh, I don't have a conclusion to this, but, but it, it struck me. It's so powerful that it's coming from Strauss because there, there are going to be loads of podcasts and people in cricket media who haven't played professional sport or have but a very long time ago. You can kind of say all this, but you're not speaking with authority and you're not speaking in a way that actually, let's be honest, if a player hears people who haven't played the game professionally talking about this stuff, they, they are just going to ignore it, right? right? Whereas Strauss, he just over 10 years ago captained England to number one in the world. You can also say that Strauss has overseen in whatever role it has been England teams that have adhered to what he's talking about. I mean, the Owen Morgan team. You know, Morgan talks about diversity all the time. That it became a you know a key part of what that team was about. You speak to any of the players involved in that team, they say it was the best team they've ever played in. They loved playing in that team. The dressing room environment was great. Liam Plunkett said we would go out for dinner even when there wasn't a team dinner. He just he'd never known that in in cricket before. And you're starting to see it now as well with the the Stokes McCullum side. You know, obviously things could not be going better, and that has to be 
talked about in, in those contexts. But Stokes, Phil, you're saying it's all about winning. Stokes and Key and McCullum literally say, whether we believe them or not, it's not about winning. It's, sure. it's about the way we play. It's about, the, it's about how we kind of carry ourselves. It's, it's our approach. And, and that, that in itself is very interesting because I think, and I've said this before, I think that Stokes and McCullum in particular have the freedom to say that because they are already legends of the game. Yeah, yeah exactly. If, yeah. You, if you were to go to you know, a middling county and speak to three or four players who are struggling out of contract at the end of the summer exactly yeah. and you're saying it's not really about winning and losing it's about giving something back to the to, English, to the English game and potentially protecting the Red Bull future of the game <laughs> and its legacy then I think they might tell you it goes to get stuffed um, in so many words it's absolutely about winning and losing for them because they have to find a way to survive to the end of that summer and hope against hope that they can get another one year or a two year mm. so I think these conversations are absolutely welcome and you're right to point out that these conversations were already being instituted before Strauss has come out and said these things of course and before cricket's reckoning and race scandals came came to the came to prominence two years ago or a year and a half ago it was already in place for sure among the more progressive elements of the game but I just think it's interesting that we are having a, having this conversation um, having heard things seen things read stories and you know, seen bits and bits of it myself. But you say that authority that Strauss speaks with, that's key because in it has to be someone like Strauss, but these structures of power in the game are so predominantly male that it has to, it, the reason that they've not spoken out about it before now is almost that element of it within that space as well. It's been talked about for so long outside of that context with people from outside of that power structure that this needs to be changed you know i've i've been having these conversations since i was yay high you know that it needs to be changed sure. so it is a big moment that someone like strauss has come out and said that but it's not going to change until you massively diversify those power structures of the game you talked about strauss being progressive but also same time an establishment figure there also needs to be that kind of reckoning for these conversations to be able to be had because otherwise it's not going to change um and there's still going to be that toxicity that runs through that kind of structure of cricket all the way from the top all the way down to the dressing room all the way down to the village green dressing room with the under 14s you know you say that you've been in dressing rooms have had toxic that you know you felt uncomfortable in. i have never sat in a sports dressing room i was going to ask you this so he specified as primarily about the men's game so I was going to ask you, you've sat in, in many female cricket dressing rooms and you'd have spoken to cricketers up the ladder as well, female cricketers, and you say you've never experienced any any of that. Not personally, you know, playing very low level of cricket that I have. I've never, and others as well, I've never felt that level of toxicity. But the one time where I have, I've been in a male side, Yeah. you know, or yeah. the, the few times that I've experienced that I've been in a male side, yeah. you know. It's not going to change until you have a complete overhaul of the structures and where the people come from within the structures. A couple of articles that I read about the Strauss lecture pointed out that, you know, he did, he did talk about the uh, need for diversity, etc. But he is the 21st speaker at the MCC's All Spirit men, of Cricket lecture and every single one of them has been a man. I noticed that list as well. Bit of news from uh, the Yorkshire racism scandal this week. Yorkshire has admitted liability in response to four charges including a failure to address systemic use of racist and discriminatory language over a prolonged period and a failure to take adequate action in respect of allegations of racist behavior um tim bresnan john blaine and matthew hoggard have said this week they will not be participating in the uh, cricket disciplinary commission's uh, investigation and panel that's about to come up in a couple of weeks time and rich pyra as well and, that came and pyra out. so that means that uh, five of the people who are supposed to be part of it are no longer part of it um, in an interview with the times this week bresnan and blaine said they had lost confidence in the process they are particularly concerned about the leaking of statements in recent weeks and the ecb's failure in their view to interview them before charges were brought to them will be on that story as it develops in the next few weeks um my moment of the week uh, I, I didn't think i'd have a moment of the week on the big bash but it is the big bash final which was absolutely amazing i don't know if you watched this i watched the highlights yeah. Fifty-three thousand people at perth all pretty much behind the perth scorchers and you had the the two heroes were cooper Connolly and nick hobson Connolly 
is the Australia in the 19 captain. He hit 25 off 10 at the end in his second ever innings in professional cricket. They needed 39 off 19 when he came uh, to the crease with Hobson there. Hobson, who's not played a whole lot of professional cricket himself, had just run out the inform Ashton Turner. Connolly said when he got out there, he said, I just walked up to Hobbo and said, mate, we can do this. I have full faith in ourselves. Then Hobson said to Connolly, just keep a strong base. And if it's there, try to hit it for six. And if it's not there, just play a good cricket shot along the ground. Um, So that was an amazing finish. And there's a great video of the Australian squad in India watching this. Uh, And you can hear someone off Who is that guy? I think it's (laughs) Kawaja. Kawaja says, who is that guy? Um, and then you can hear Ashton Agar say, I love him, <laughs> which is great. I'm glad um, it had it had the the finale that it so desperately needed. I'm glad it had a finale. Yeah. It's just, just thought it was never, never going to end. It's starting again next month, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a nice reminder. Of, this is why that everyone was saying we should create something like the BBL. 53,000 people really into a final. You don't, you don't actually get that that often in cricket, full stop. Um, so that was a, a, a wonderful way to finish a tournament that maybe wasn't quite wonderful for the second half of it. Uh, very briefly on the uh, SA20, that that Cape Town team that we bigged up at the start with Rashid Khan, Gagisa, Rabada, Jofra, Sam Curry, dead last, yeah. dead last. And they sealed their fate as the, as the bottom team with a week to go as well. Um, so it's not gone, not gone well for them. Um, Phil, what's your moment of the week? Uh, I can't say I've watched it all because... That would have sent me spiralling into a fit of despond. But uh, she was boy, Tajnareen Chandapur. Talk about a chip off the old block. It is extraordinary. Um, He has all of the crabby mannerisms of his father. He has a slightly more flourishing backlift. But he's, he's essentially a clone of his dad. And he made 200 not out in about three weeks um, in the first test match against Zimbabwe, which is ambling to a draw um, over there on the telly. Uh, Gary Balance, 117 not out. You have to have a heart of stone not to not to raise a smile to, to that, I think. Anyway, Chandapur made an unbeaten 100 in 460-something deliveries. Uh, and he became, with his dad, only the second father-son combination to make doubles in test cricket who was the other one the mohammeds the mohammeds is the correct oh, i knew you'd get it well, yeah. i wrote the piece for the magazine you wrote the piece. oh did you yeah that <laughs> that's what that's got you the job cassia yeah. so it's still paying off Han- hanif and Shoaib, yeah they both made doubles at test cricket it's only the second time in history that's been done um and you know more seriously they've found one up there up, up the top to go alongside brathwaite who goes off like a train obviously so <laughs> You know, you can you can make it. You can lie in um, what knowing was it? that 112 and none after 51 overs. Yeah, on the, on day one. Yeah, my word. Um, anyway, yeah, Baz Basball reaches most corners of the of the earth, but not all of them. Um, mm. But yeah, look, you know, good to see uh, that, that, that. As I say, they found one. Um, what was the stat? I think Ben tweeted it. The first West Indian opener not called Brathwaite to score a Test hundred since Chris Gale in 08 or something. 08 like or something. Right around that time. Yeah, I have a boring bit of trivia or stats mm. um talking to chris gale chris gale is the fourth highest six hitter in men's test cricket as we know stokes and mccullum nauseatingly are on 107 each um gilchrist is on 100 third who's fifth i can't contribute no we, I can't that actually, but we, you, you were surprised were i was surprised we don't Finn, I don't usually talk about cricket no but um we'll talk, but, we, 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 but we did have a conversation about this yesterday um Cairns? It's not Cairns. It's not Saywag. It's not Lara. It's not Flintoff. It's not Hayden. It's not Peterson. It's not Doney. It's not Southie. Was your guess, wasn't it? Southie's about 15th or maybe 20th. It's not Botham. It's not Tendulkar. It's not Greenwich. It's not Rohit Sharma. It's not David Warner. It's not A.B. de Villiers. Pant's got to be fast. I don't know where he is, but he's not in the top 30 odds. Give you a clue. He's a very, very different type of player to Pant. I was blown away by this. This person hit 97 sixes. So retired. No. Not known for his hair-raising shot-making. Oh, Callis. Jacques Callis, Callis is your answer. From 166 test matches, he hit 97 sixes. Mm. So there you go. Wow. There you go. Um, Bit of dull trivia just to see And they're all so boring that everyone forgot them. <laughs> yeah. The... Yeah. 
But that, that, that is kind of true, though. Like, I'm trying to think back to Callus sixes. They aren't that exciting. There's like kind of a <laughs> pragmatism to it. It's like, well, the, sp- the spinner's tossed it up. I should hit it for six. Yeah. Um, he, he didn't look like he was having fun while hitting the no, ball for six. No, he didn't look like he was having fun. Um, Sorry, yeah, Van Gogh. Full stop. Yeah. There you go. Um, to, to finish off that YouTube comment uh, I mentioned at the start, um, to, to be clear, we don't condone any of the activities uh, described in, in the comments. So two weeks Blimey. ago, a YouTube <laughs> user uh, called MR commented, maybe it's because I'm watching this high, but Ben always makes really interesting points. Yeah. And then he was back for more the week after and he said, time to pop in another edible or two, give it half an hour and then start watching this just to truly appreciate Ben and his, and his wise words. I think I love him. And then... He engaged that, in a couple that of jawline goes a long way, doesn't it? <laughs> and then he's engaged with a few uh, other YouTube viewers, and then there's another reply that said, "Bro, the two-minute franchise cricket roundup almost made me cry." Um, cry in what way? Despair. He didn't. He didn't specify, but I'm guessing, given the nature of his previous comments, out of some kind of joy. Um, that reminds me. Someone tweeted about this a few days ago. Um, the two-minute thing. Yeah, someone, someone Basically, said... Basically, <laughs> like, why the hell are you doing that? Pull yourself together. You call yourself a cricket podcast. Well, absolutely right, mate. Bang on. Um, Thank you very much. Thank you for your your insights. That is all for today's show. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Katia. Uh, this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We'll be back next week after the first India-Australia test in the broader Gavaskar Trophy. Podcast Network.